Hi, everybody. I'm Guy Powell, and welcome to the next episode of The Backstory on the Shroud of Turin. Please visit GuyPowell.com and sign up for more episodes. I am the author of the upcoming book, The Only Witness, which is a historical fiction tracing the story of the Shroud over the last two millennia. Today, we'll be speaking with Barry Schwartz. He's one of the preeminent researchers on the Shroud of Turin. For those of you that are familiar with STERP, he was one of the team members that were able to research the, the Shroud in the Royal Palace in Turin, Italy in 1978. But before we get started, I wanted to tell a short story. I used to live in Germany, and one of the most impressive things I have ever experienced was my visit to the Dachau concentration camps right outside of Munich, Germany. Now by impressive, I don't mean positive. I mean, it made this incredible impression on me and it's more akin to the German translation imponieren, and it made this impression on me in, in an incredibly negative way. And to be honest with you, I will never ever go back. I can barely look at a movie on any of the visits that people take or show on, on Auschwitz or Birkenau or Dachau or wherever it happens to be. Well, viewing the shroud for me is similarly impressive, both negatively and positively. The shroud shows and witnesses the scourging with the flagrum over a hundred times, the suffering, the wounds, and then lastly, the death, possibly, probably by asphyxiation, but it could have been something else as well. On the positive side though, the shroud, assuming its authenticity is the only witness to the resurrection. It is the most studied artifact in the world. And it's these two reasons that led to the effort expended on understanding this truly wondrous relic, both by Sterp and by scientists around the world. So let me welcome uh, Barry Schwartz. He's of course an amazing photographer and that's kind of how, his, uh, how he started in this business. But he was the official documenting photographer for the Shroud of Turin Research Project, also known as STERP. STERP is the team that conducted the first in-depth scientific examination of the Shroud in 1978. Today, he plays an influential role in Shroud research and education as the editor and founder of the internationally recognized Shroud of Turin website, which is www.shroud.com. It is one of the oldest, largest, and most extensive Shroud resources on the internet, with more than 15 million visitors from over 160 countries. So in, 2009, in 2009, he founded the Shroud of Turin Education and Research Association, also known as STERA, a nonprofit 5013C corporation to which he donated the website and his extensive shroud photographic collection, as well as many other, other important shroud resources in order to preserve and maintain these materials and make them available for future research and study. He currently serves as the president of Stara, Inc. Barry, welcome, and so good to have you today with me. It's my pleasure to be here, Guy. I'm glad to be able to participate with you in your new venture of doing these podcasts. Yeah, thank you, Barry. And uh, I'm really looking forward to doing this with you and, and also with others. So tell us, tell us more about the story of how you got involved in the Shroud originally. 
Well, back in uh, the 1970s, I was in Santa Barbara, California, and I operated a commercial photographic studio, uh, but primarily focused more, I mean, we, I, we did advertising and that kind of thing, but a lot of my work was scientific, medical, or technical, and I worked with uh, organizations like Raytheon and GM Delco and Burroughs and uh, many of the medical uh, device manufacturing companies. So I had a, a pretty strong technical background. And then I was approached in, uh, I guess this would have been 1975, late, mid late uh, 1975, by a company in Santa Barbara that was a contractor to Los Alamos National Laboratories. And they had a project where they needed a photographic consultant, someone who had access to a darkroom and had darkroom skills to produce five books of images from what was then highly classified uh, motion picture films of above ground atomic explosions, mushroom clouds. And what they found was because they had these amazing computers at that time, beyond what any of the rest of us could even imagine then, uh, big cray water-cooled monsters, um, they were able to extract new data from these old unclassified films, they had to reclassify the films and so they needed to extract this information. I had to, in the dark room, superimpose kilometer scales and all kind of other information. And then these books were presented to the, what was then the Atomic Energy Commission, now the DOE, Department of Energy, and uh, all the military groups. So uh, I did that project, it lasted seven months, and I worked with a gentleman named Don Devan. Well, a few weeks after we finished, the phone rang again and it was Don Devan again. And when you're self-employed and the phone rings, you're always praying, hey, that's the next job, I hope. And so Don called me up and he said, no, he said, not exactly. He said, what do you know about the Shroud of Turin? And I laughed. I said, but Don, I'm, I'm Jewish. <laughs> and Don laughed and said, so am I, remember? Don was one of the other Jewish members of our team. And he explained to me, that he and a number of other researchers from Los Alamos and Sandia Labs had taken a device called a VP8 image analyzer, which you input a black and white with a black and white video camera, and it displays the results on a green screen monitor. And what it does is it takes the lights and darks of the image and stretches them into 3D space proportionate to each other. Well, if you go back to the early parts of the 20th century, Shroud scholars then were predicting that there might be some depth or spatial or 3D information encoded in the image, but they had no way to prove it. Uh, in the 1960s, a, a photographer and artist named Leo Valla projected an image onto a block of clay and sculpted a 3D face of the man of the Shroud, which turns out was quite accurate. But in 1976, when they submitted a photograph of the shroud to this device, that was the first time in history that a scientific instrument confirmed that there was spatial or depth or 3D information encoded into the density of the shroud image. And as soon as I saw that, I knew, well, it can't be a photograph or an artwork because we pho photographers can't do that. We can imply depth with highlights and shadows, but we're not encoding any distance information in our photographs. So that caught my interest. So when he explained to me that they were looking for a photographer, they're gonna put a team together. He said, would you like to be a part of that? And I said, no, <laughs> I didn't wanna get involved. And he assured me that it was science. And so I kind of relented. I was very curious about that image property 
But to be very candid, I was also thinking free trip to Italy. So good wine. <laughs> yeah, well, I'd never been to Europe and this was an opportunity. So I said yes. But a few weeks later, uh, two other gentlemen joined our we worked in regional groups. I was in California at the time. And so two gentlemen from the Jet Propulsion Lab joined our team. Don Lynn, who was head of imaging on Voyager Viking, Mariner and Galileo projects, and John Lohr. And uh, Don Lynn was a good Catholic man. And uh, a couple of weeks into it, I was again feeling, eh, maybe I shouldn't be a part of this. It seemed so far above me. I wasn't a scientist as, you know, as some of these guys were just amazing scientists. And I remember saying, well, maybe, uh, maybe I shouldn't be a part of this. And Don Lynn, my, my hero from the JPL, uh, looked at me and said, um, have you forgotten that the man in question is a Jew? And I said, no, I knew that. And he says, oh, you don't think God wants one of his chosen people on our team? And I laughed and I said, no, I never thought that. And he said, listen, stop complaining, go to Turin, do the best job you can do. God doesn't tell us in advance what the plan is, but one day you'll know. That's what kept me on the team. And here it is 43 years later, and I'm still doing it. So um, that was what brought me on board the Shroud of Turin Research Project. Wow. Yeah, interesting story. And uh, 43 years later, how it has changed so many lives, and certainly including yours and, including and I'm sure everybody that was on the, uh, the STIRP theme. Wow. So tell us, uh, what was it actually like in the Royal Palace there in Turin? Well, you know, people immediately think of a scientific examination. They think of a laboratory with stainless steel tables and, you know, white enameled stuff and beakers. And this is a 400 year old creaky old building, kind of musty uh, uh, tapestries hanging on the walls that were 400 years old. So dust was an issue. Uh, there were frescoes on the ceiling and every time a truck or a bus went by the palace, the building would vibrate and you could see the particulates sort of floating down. Uh, it was not the best, but it was what we were given to do and we adapted. It, what amazed me, and I can say this, speaking of my fellow team members, even though I've worked with scientists and researchers over the years, I had never met a more dedicated group of empirical people than this group of scientists. They absolutely were dedicated to doing this. So they sat and we spent 17 months in advance of going to Turin just to plan out our experiments that were all put into a, a test plan that was submitted to the then owner of the Shroud, King Umberto, uh, who was mm -hmm. legally the owner at that time. And it was King Umberto who gave us permission to examine the Shroud, not the Catholic Church. Hmm. because it wasn't owned by the Catholic Church, it was owned by the king. And so the people in Turin were known as the custodians of the shroud. And so when King Umberto gave us the yes, go ahead, people in Turin weren't too thrilled because they'd been studying the shroud for years. They'd never been given this kind of access and permission. And suddenly this group of American scientists from big name laboratories, are so that there was a certain level of resentment, which I understand that uh, they didn't feel too thrilled about having us there. But it, I mean, they were lobbying to stop us until the shroud was brought in the room. Hmm. But in the end, that didn't stop us. And 
considering during that 17 month period, they had to anticipate every possible problem that might be encountered and be prepared to deal with those problems should they arise. And sure enough, a number of them almost on a daily basis did. And the thoroughness of their preparation still amazes me at how they were able to anticipate what possibly could go wrong and provide uh, a, a way of dealing with that should it uh, should arrive. One of the best examples is the steel table that we used that was constructed specifically for this purpose to attach the shroud to it with magnets so it wouldn't damage the cloth with pinholes or clamps or something like that. And uh, once the table arrived in Turin, they found that it had oxidized, that the steel had a white powdery surface on it that would come off, you could rub it off on your hands and obviously couldn't put the shroud on that. They anticipated that and they brought with them, remember we had two guys from uh, NASA, <laughs> they brought several rolls of gold foil mylar, the same stuff that you've seen inside the cargo bay of the space shuttle or on satellites, very expensive stuff and we had to cover the panels of our table with that gold foil, foil mylar. But the fact that they anticipated that could be a problem and brought a solution with us, sure enough that we needed to use. I mean, that just is a small example of how thorough their planning was to go and do amazing. this. This wasn't just a bunch of guys going, okay, let's hop in an airplane and go look at this route. This was the most thorough examination and planning of any scientific project that I've ever been a part of. So, a, so real tough, a real tough question for you then. Sure. Uh, so you were there 120 hours. Did Correct. they plan sleep for anybody or was everybody awake the whole time? Well, being the only documenting photographer, I, I slept, let's see, we were there 120 hours and I was in the room approximately 113 hours. I did have to go back to the hotel and take a shower and get an hour or two sleep uh, on one or two occasions. So I wasn't there. And sadly, because of that, I did miss documenting one of the experiments in depth the way I did all the others. And that to this day, I kind of have regrets of that, but you know, you can only stay awake for so long. Yep. And yep. Uh, especially when you're in a, a you know, in, in another culture, another country, different languages. Um, we didn't get to enjoy much of Turin, but <laughs> what we did do is an amazing examination of that amazing Fantastic. yeah it's it's really impressive so and out of that uh, what do you think is the one most valuable outcome uh that came out of that well i think if if i were to look at everything that we did i think maybe the most important single piece of information is the fact that we found no traces of paint pigments binders or any kind of artistic medium that might lead to this being some kind of an artwork. And the same is true of photography because there was a belief that some of the silver that uh, when it was in a fire in 1532, that some of the silver from the casket it was in may have dripped onto the cloth, burning some of those holes. We were also looking for silver and that was a double-edged sword because if the shroud were made photographically, which some people suggested, um, then we would have found silver all over the cloth, more so in the image, less so in the outer, you know, outside of the image. We found zero silver except for one microscopic, literally microscopic bead of what apparently had been molten silver, perhaps again from that fire. 
that's the only silver we found anywhere. So there's uh, one or two gentlemen out there, people out there who claim the shroud is made photographically, and they don't understand that when you fix a photographic image, it removes all the unused silver and what remains is the silver that forms the image. So if the shroud had been made photographically, we would have found silver everywhere. And since that theory is that they soaked the cloth in a silver solution, it would have penetrated into the fibers. It would have been overwhelming in the amount of silver we'd have found. We found zero silver. So it's not a photographic image, although it has one or two properties like a photograph, yeah. but it has other properties unlike any photograph ever made. Well, that, that 3D imaging story that you told with about the VPA, that that kind of goes totally against what you would otherwise get in a in a in a, in a regular yeah. photograph in a 2D photograph. Yeah, so, in my uh, present in my presentations, I actually show a VP8 image of a couple of kids just to show you the difference. And of course, it's all distorted and flat, and you don't get any natural relief of a human form, which is what you got on the VP8 with the shroud image. It's the actual relief of a human form, like a bar relief. And so uh, we know that there was some interaction between a cloth and the body to form that image. We still don't know the mechanism. That was our intent. Our primary purpose, answer the question, how is the image formed? In the end, we couldn't come up with a, an answer because if you get the chemistry right, the physics is wrong. You get the physics right, the chemistry is wrong. So we came back unable to answer that question. And of course, we came back with a thousand new questions too. So that's always uh, the way it is, isn't it? Yeah, always the way it is, but that's how science works. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, so uh, so you were in the presence of the shroud in that room in the uh, in the royal palace. So, what was it like in there? What what kind of feelings uh, came to to you as you were in there? Well, I I think if you look at the actual story of what happened when we arrived in Turin a week early, before the end of the public exhibition, which was commemorating the 400th anniversary of it being in Turin, 1578 to 1978. Um, so we, we got there and it was, was still on public display. And our goal was to be able to take our time, unpack the equipment, set it up, calibrate everything, and have a week of preparation before the shroud was actually taken off public display and brought to us for examination. We got there and we found out upon arrival that all 80 crates of our equipment had been seized by Italian customs and they weren't gonna let it loose. And we found out later that the reason was we had an x-ray machine with us, a mm. very low power x-ray. And unfortunately on the outside of the crate, they had to put a radiation sticker because it's an x-ray machine. And that apparently put the fear of God into the <laughs> Italian customs folks. So they seized their equipment. It took like five and a half days of negotiations. And I don't know if this is true or not, but rumor has it that the Archbishop of Turin put the cathedral up as collateral <laughs> to let our equipment loose. I don't know if it's true or not. Uh, I have never been able to verify that myself, but that was a story that apparently um, the archbishop went and spoke to the customs folk, and then they eventually released it to us. But it was now down to like a day and a half prior to the end of the public exhibition when they were gonna bring us the shroud. So. From that moment forward, when the equipment arrived on a dump truck, of all things, uh, to the Royal Palace, uh, we had to then un unload all the equipment, and take it up a couple of flights of steps up to where we were going to do the exam, and unpack all these wooden crates, and uh, pull out the instruments and start to calibrate. We didn't sleep for that day and a half at all. 
We literally worked around the clock and they brought us to Shroud. We were still getting our equipment finalized and covering those panels of the table. We hadn't even finished covering those panels of the table with Mylar when the shroud was laid out before us. Wow, wow. So you actually then, it was not only 120 hours, it was a couple of days in addition to that as you were getting set Absolutely. up. Absolutely. And then Absolutely. the stress and everything, oh man. So uh, let me let me change subjects uh, a little sure. bit on you there. And one of the significant events that took place was uh, with the shroud was with uh, Secundo Pia. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. Well, in 1898, an Italian lawyer who was also a, I guess we'd call him an amateur photographer. When back in 1898, there weren't that many amateur photographers, obviously, using a large view camera, the kind that you have to put a dark cloth and look at the image upside down on a ground glass back. Um, he was given the opportunity to make the first actual photographs, authorized photographs of the shroud. And the problem was, even though there was electricity in the Royal Palace in 1898, it was a palace after all, um, it fluctuated. And so the lighting he was using fluctuated along with the voltage in the palace. And his first set of exposures were wrong. And he had to go back a second time. He had to climb a scaffolding with his monstrous big camera, as big as me. He had to photograph the shroud through glass, which means he had to deal with the surface reflections on the glass. And, you know, and he was not working with, uh, you know, the high quality photographic technology that we had in 1978. Uh, he was working with what was then very new technology and he managed to make these first photographs. And of course, we always look at that moment as the beginning of the scientific era of study of the shroud because for the first time ever, people outside of the northern part of Italy were, you know, where Turin is in, in the Piedmont district, uh, for the first time, people outside of that area could actually see this object and they could reproduce it in publications, books, and magazines by then. And that's when the real interest in the shroud globally began. Now, again, it was still reasonably restricted because nobody had ever done an examination of it. But there were researchers in France and of course in Italy who were already avidly studying the shroud. Uh, Pierre Barbet, the medical doctor uh, who wrote uh, called a, a something at Calvary. I'm sorry, I've forgotten the name of his book. Uh, a doctor at Calvary, I believe. Anyway, that that was the first time that a medical expert had looked at the shroud and said, look, this is authentic. This is a real body. This isn't an artwork. Uh, the blood flows have been determined to be actual real blood flows, not painted on as some of the skeptics have uh, said. Because look, a forensic pathologist who deals with crimes every day knows what looks real and what's fake and Buckland who was also a forensic pathologist Dr. Buckland who was on our team he's the guy they based the TV show Quincy on and he was an advisor to the Quincy producers uh, for that program so we, we had really credible experts on our team not just a bunch of guys who wanted to go, you know, look at the shroud, but people who had the qualifications to perform the kind of tests that were necessary for us to try and determine how that image was formed. Yeah, just amazing. <laughs> so just curious, are those plates from Secundo Pia, are they still existent or are they been lost now? Or? No, they're still in existence. Of course, they're archived and put away to be mm. preserved. 
and duplicates of those uh, which you couldn't tell the difference unless you're an expert. Mm. Duplicates of those plates are on display at the Shroud Museum in Turin. And are those- As uh, is the camera, by the way. And are those plates uh, the same resolution as what you have today, or would you think that they're- No, 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 no. The technology's evolved dramatically since then. And of course, we're talking about photography and we're talking about film. And I'll tell you how things have changed. I was some years ago, maybe four or five years ago, I was in Canada lecturing to school kids, uh, you know, fifth, sixth, seventh grade or something like that, 12, 13 year olds. And a kid put up his hand. He said, excuse me, Mr. Schwartz, you keep talking about film. Is that a USB device? And what that shows you is just how much has changed in a very short period of time. You know, there was a time where you couldn't walk down any street anywhere on the planet without seeing a yellow Kodak sign somewhere. Well, I yeah. was in Jerusalem in 2013 and in the old in the old city, and I saw a little shop and had a Kodak sign. I made a photograph of the Kodak sign, realizing we're not going to be seeing those much anymore. Yeah, and yeah. Of course, my now dad, you, they're gone. Yeah, yeah. My dad bought stock in Polaroid, so. Well, Very early on when it first came out. <laughs> yeah, well, that wouldn't have been a bad idea at the time, but yeah, now, of yeah. course, that's obsolete as well. Yeah, exactly. It's all exactly. digital now. And, a, you know, a 10 or a 12-year-old kid, if you think back, what, he can remember back to when he was five or six years old, he wouldn't know what film is because film isn't used anymore except on very rare occasions. And in the fine art photography area, mm. they're still making certain films and papers because fine art photographers are still making prints, the analog method. But almost everything else is digital. And look, digital was not viable until they made image sensors that had higher resolution than the best films we had in 1978. Yeah, yeah. So nowadays, yeah, we can, yeah, we can do, you know, we have 50 and 100 megapixel image sensors Hasselblad cameras, perfect example, which are way better than anything we could do on film. And you can stitch them together to get like multi-hundred or multi-thousand megabyte uh, images. It's pretty impressive. Just as an example, we, we make a life-size replica, as you know. Um, the file that that's made from is 400 megabytes. Mm. And that's why the details yeah. are all there because of the resolution that we have. And my photographs of the shroud, I photograph half the shroud at a time. The ventral image and the dorsal image separately with some overlap. 20 years later, when I put them in Photoshop, put them together, only took a few minutes, and we created that 400 megabyte image from which we can make life-size images of the shroud with beautiful resolution. They are incredible. They are, I, I, when I saw the one that you sent me, um, it, it, it's, it is as impressive as as I was talking about, about, you know, Dachau, except now in the positive sense, and just well, absolutely impressive. What's interesting is that when you go to Turin to see the actual shroud on display, you're never any closer than about three or four meters from it. And you're looking through big, thick, bulletproof glass. People have problems because they bring their phones and try and take pictures of the shroud. And the infrared sensor in your phone, the focusing mechanism, bounces off the surface glass and you quite can't get it in focus because you've got a few inches of that glass in front of the shroud and 
it's reflecting and measuring off the surface of the glass. So people said to me, well, every photo I took of the shroud was out of focus. And I said, that's because you're having to shoot through glass and not just a thin pane of glass, but thick enough glass that the distance between the surface of the glass and the actual shroud is enough to throw your focus of your film, of your camera. Well, if I ever get to uh, actually visit in person, which I absolutely have on my bucket list, uh, I will figure out some way to take advantage of that. <laughs> but Turn off the autofocus. Yeah. That's, <laughs> that's it. But, that's it, exactly. But you can't do that in a phone. It's it's built in where that's why I still walk around with the big Nikon 35 mil stout body, digital. Mm. Uh, and that allows me much greater control over, and I can turn the autofocus off and focus actually on the shroud. So again, look, I'm glad I'm retired because otherwise I'd be competing with every human being on the planet that owns a telephone. <laughs> yes, that is true. <laughs> that is people. True. Although I will admit a, a, a nice camera does do a good job. But let me just change the uh, subject a little bit. Go right ahead. Uh, then we had, um, I think it was uh, 87 was the radiocarbon testing. 88, yeah. The infamous picture, I've got it in my book, the 1260 to 1390 exclamation point. And uh, so do you ever uh, think that that will be refuted enough so that, that the, the proponents of that test will actually believe the, the new test? Well, that, that image you're describing, I refer to as the Three Stooges. Um, and I always refer to the exclamation point after the two dates as uh, a new form of scientific notation. <laughs> he said with his tongue deep in his cheek. Um, look, the radiocarbon dating was obviously a major setback. And the folks who did the radiocarbon dating had a very intentional purpose in mind, and that was to use the shroud to promote their technology, which they have done dramatically well. So they were successful in what they wanted to do. Radiocarbon dating is a multi-billion dollar industry now. So and every time even if it's got nothing to do with the shroud if radiocarbon dating is mentioned they always say that was what was used to debunk the shroud of turin debunking the shroud the shroud is a fake obviously makes a better headline than saying hey new science has shown that the radiocarbon dating was wrong and we now have six peer-reviewed scientific papers incredible scientific journals proving that the radiocarbon dating date that they achieved could not have been accurate for any other place on the shroud except for the sample they took. And here's quickly why. They cut a strip. And if you look at the dates that were achieved across along that strip, it wasn't consistent. It went hundreds of years from one end of that strip to the others. So how can you take any point of that uneven dated area and apply that to anywhere else on the cloth, you can't. Now, we didn't really know that for a fact because for 27 years, the three labs and the British Museum, which was the overseer and held all the data, refused to release the raw data, which is highly unusual in the, in the scientific world. Once your paper's published, you can release the raw data because the scientific method says repeatability is important. So you release the data so other researchers can kind of try and see they can achieve the same results. That's a scientific method. That's how it works. And so we, and, and maybe the most ironic part of the, the once uh, a gentleman named Tristan Casabianca, a French researcher, who's also a legal student, went to England and used the Freedom of Information Act and forced the British Museum to release the raw data. So 
remembering that one of the three labs was Oxford that do, did the dating on the shroud. Tristan Casabianca collects the data, brings on Emanuela Marinelli, who's a well-known shroud scholar for the last 40 years, and several experts in uh, statistical analysis, and they evaluated this raw data, and they came to the conclusion there's absolutely no way that the sample chosen and the results from that sample could be used to date any other place on that cloth, period. Thank and you. ironically, that article was published in a journal called Archaeometry, which is published by Oxford. So I always thought there was a certain irony that the radiocarbon dating comes out from one of the labs is from Oxford and 40 years later, 30 years later, uh, a paper in Archaeometry, a journal published by Oxford, disputes the radiocarbon dating based on access to the raw data. Now, the problem is Shroud is not a fake, does not make as good a headline as Shroud is a fake. So yes, it'll take many years. It's already taken, what, 30 years just for uh, some of the media to now say, well, they dated the Shroud in 1988, but new data shows that maybe they were wrong. It's not exactly <laughs> a definitive claim, but we're getting towards the point where people do recognize that there was in fact questions about that radiocarbon dating and its accuracy. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. I uh, heard at the Museum of the Bible the other day, they did a, a, a presentation with uh, Russ Prealt and Joe Marino and, and two others. I, I can't remember. Dr. Exactly. Cheryl White and Father Peter Mangum. Thank you. Yes, absolutely. So I watched well, that. Look, three of them are board members of Stara. Yeah. Exactly. And, and I, I think we have to make Father Peter an honorary board member just so we can say all of them were board members. <laughs> exactly. I, mean, just, I spoke with Cheryl yesterday. So. Oh, fantastic. I've been meaning to reach out to her. But in any case, he mentioned his book on the kind of the refutation of the radiocarbon carbon dating. So I'm very interested in getting out. I just got the book. I have Joe to read it. So I'm looking forward to that. That's the Joe Marino book? Yes, 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 exactly. Well, I, I left it off my table. Is, but, is that the 800 page one? It is the 835 page tome. Yep, it <laughs> Riveting. is. Riveting. Yeah, it, it, look, it's much more of a reference yeah. book than a narrative, but there is some narrative as well. Mm. And uh, matter of fact, it's Joe who would probably be the next editor of Shroud.com if something happens to me. Um, and a lot of the material that you see showing up on each update of Shroud.com Joe's the guy who digs it out and sends it to me. Fantastic. And, uh, well, he'd spent 35 years working at uh, Ohio State University in the library. So who better than a guy who's an expert in the library? He didn't know how to find and research things. Right, right. So I'm very grateful to Joe. He's he's the guy who makes our updates as big as they are. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah, he's a sharp guy. I've talked to him and uh, look forward to interviewing him as well. So uh, one of the other things that I, I find curious about the, the and I don't know if you'd call it the proof of the authenticity of the shroud or not, but a lot of people say, well, the shroud only first appeared in, I think it's the 1300 or so. And right. then from then on, there was a lot of exhibitions of it and, and it was displayed yeah. and whatever and stuff like that. From, from that point, it's documented up to yeah, this day. Yeah, but it, documentation in, it is, a, is, is written so to speak but it would seem like some of the coins like the justinian coins and some of the other ones from the 600s all the way through the 900s where they the the image of jesus changes from i, I don't know what you call it a, a fictitious image to one that 
really does match the image on the shroud. In, and, the, in, in the earliest days, the depictions of Roman emperors and Jesus bald with a laurel wreath around the head. Yes. And so artists have taken that idea and converted the laurel wreath to a crown of thorns. <laughs> and that's the way art, artists have typically depicted the crown of thorns over the centuries. Yeah, and yet, yeah. in reality, the bloodstains cover his scalp. It wasn't a pretty crown. I mean, you couldn't tell a, a Roman soldier, hey, listen, before you execute this criminal, uh, weave him a crown so he looks good up on that cross. You know, I don't think that happened. I don't I think, think that they, was the purpose. Yeah. Yeah. They took a, a, a thorn bush and they smashed it on his head to humiliate him even further because he had proclaimed himself king of the Jews. Yeah. Yeah. So where I was going and, sure. and, and and I think you're you're kind of saying the same thing to me, those coins that have so many, uh, so many similarities to the image on the shroud, those coins are kind of proof that it existed at least in in the 600s. Yeah, and I think there's other evidence uh, in the historical record. There's where Cheryl White would be. She's a professor mm -hmm. of history, and that's my weakest part. Uh, but there are other points in history. There was a, a cloth called the Mandillion. Mm -hmm. It's not made by hand, meaning not an artwork, uh, that ostensibly showed the body of Jesus. Um, there was the Abgar legend where mm -hmm. the shrine was brought to King Abgar who was suffering from a disease and it cured him. Uh, although the Catholic Church has never attributed any miracles to the shroud, just as a point of reference. Um, and But those coins, and not just the coins, but if you go back to the, uh, the early days of the, I'm sorry, the, uh, not the main Catholic Church, the I'm sorry, brain, brain freeze here. Uh, at any rate, if you go back to uh, the Orthodox Church, if you mm. go back and look at that, you'll see uh, iconography starting at about the fourth century. Uh, the famous one is the uh, Christ Pantocrator, I think it's called. Right. And, and it's, I mean, you can superimpose one over the other and they're so close that you can't deny that one was based on the other. And look, the first depiction of Jesus with a split beard that we see on the shroud is, I think, 285 AD in the Domitia Catacombs in Rome, a fresco on the ceiling. And it shows Jesus and it shows him looking like the man of the shroud. That's the first evidence I think we have of a depiction of Jesus that seems to be based on the image of the shroud. So there are places, but because there are gaps in that history, um, it's very easy for skeptics to say, well, you can't prove that. And, you know, from a historical point or historian's point of view, um, you need documentation before you can make those leaps of faith. And yet at the same time, there's enough information, I think, in the historical record that implies this cloth. Remember, this cloth kind of violates a bunch of laws anyway, certainly Jewish laws, right. uh, because it, it has blood on it, which means it must be buried with the body. And second, it has a depiction of a man that a billion people believe to be the son of God, both of which are forbidden by Jewish law. Yeah. So they couldn't come running out of the tomb saying, look what we got. They couldn't do that. They had to hide it and it had to be protected. So where was it for 225 years until somebody obviously saw it and used it as a model for a fresco that they did? Um, and the answer is it was probably hidden away and perhaps even forgotten for a period of time. Right. 
I, um, I think that that's exactly what happened. It was hidden away and forgotten. It yeah. got hidden away. The person died, and and then nobody knew. And then all of a sudden, it shows up again, and they find and it. There's an article, a couple of papers by a professional photographer from Turin named Aldo Goreski. They're on Shroud.com. Look it up. Read his papers. He believes the shroud was rolled up and put in a clay jar, a tall clay jar and probably put in a room filled with clay jars off in the corner somewhere. And that's a perfect way to hide it in plain sight, basically. And he showed by creating a shroud and putting it into a container like that and allowing a little water to condense in the bottom, there are water stains on his mock-up that are almost identical to the water stains on the, some of the water stains on the shroud. So there's a pretty good piece of information there that points to the fact that at some point in time it was stored that way. So just curious, the shroud itself, the cloth, uh, is there a hem or is it a, a selvage on the end or what? what is on the edges going Yeah, on? there's there's like a seam or a selvage, I guess. I'm not a, an expert in, in uh, textiles, of course. Mm -hmm. uh, and there are others who are far more export, uh, expert than I am that have written about this. And again, you can find this I, I would suggest to anyone listening or watching uh, when you go to shroud.com it's gotten so big that you know after a couple of years of building the site I could not find things that I was looking for and I knew I'd put somewhere so there's now an internal search engine that only searches within shroud.com so if you go to shroud.com and you're looking for something specific and you know how to use a search engine, which nowadays many people do, use the uh, search engine on the opening front page of shroud.com and I guarantee you, you'll find just about anything you're looking for and more of it than you probably want. <laughs> and, I ha and I have done that. I've been all over that site. There is a ton of stuff there. So uh, we're just about out of time, but why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, Stara? the uh, Shroud of Turin Research, Education and Research Association and and what the mission is and where it is sure. and, and stuff sure. like that. Well, look, uh, once I got to a point with the website for the first 14 years, I, I was paying for it out of my own pocket and my pocket got pretty empty. <laughs> so uh, it got to a point uh, after I moved here to Colorado um, that I thought, you know, I can't afford to keep doing this if I don't have some external support. And I'm, as a self-employed guy for 50 years, I'm not used to asking people to give me money, okay? But I felt that it was essential. And the other thing is this, I'm gonna be very candid in this interview and say that there were some people, because I'm Jewish, thought that I was doing this specifically about money. And I felt that the best thing I could do to prove that was not true was to give up the ownership of all of it. So when I formed Stara legally, we got a lawyer and we legally transferred the ownership, ownership of the website, of all my photography and all the other materials I've collected over to Stara. So none of it goes to me. So if I were to die, Stara would continue on with our board of directors. They'd have to find somebody to replace me, obviously. And uh, to it would take about three or four people to do all the stuff I do. but they'd be able to do that. And that was a way of showing the world, if you will, that look, I'm in this for the, not for the obvious reason. It's not about making money. For me, I felt that being in that room was a great privilege that I had been given. And I felt that that privilege brought with it an obligation that I wasn't there for me. I was there for you. And because of that, 
I felt building this website, making this material readily available to everybody, free. Look, if we wanted to make money, we'd allow advertising on that website with a couple million visits a year. We'd be rolling in the dough compared to what we are. But I felt right from the beginning that advertising would be inappropriate on this site, even though many people come from the scientific point of view, many others come from a spiritual, religious, or theological point of view. And the last thing I want to do is have ads popping up in their face. So no advertising on Shroud.com, never had it, never will. As long as I'm alive, it won't be there. But that also removes one revenue stream that any other nonprofit would, you know, look at any other nonprofit website and there's you know they're raking in the bucks with advertising as well i don't want to do that i want people to go to shroud.com and have the experience of studying this object and as it says on that front page in the opening paragraph given the facts you have to make up your own mind about this yeah and i and that that, that i think that's great and i, I really appreciate that and uh, and i really understand the mission and and, and and separating out the site from the the monetary that makes that makes a yeah. lot of sense so wow uh so th thank you th i can't thank you enough thank you thank you thank you barry that was it was awesome uh, it's always awesome every time i talk to you whether it's in uh in this interview or in, uh, by phone i i'm picking up things and i'm going man i wish i had known this uh, you know lots and lots of good stuff really really good well you know, you realize we barely scratched the surface today I know, and I mean, you've got so much stuff out there on the shroud.com. I've been out there numbers, numbers and numbers of times, and every time I start reading, I have one question I want to get answered, and I read about 50 other ones, and I got to, I got to stop because it's so, it's just so fascinating. So, well, but in any case, I'm sorry, just going to say, do send me a link once you get this posted so that I'll put it on shroud.com so others can see it absolutely thank you very much we'll definitely do that but also a message to the viewers please absolutely go to www.shroud.com and uh, you'll then get to see all of the stuff that we've talked about and that all the stuff that barry has uh, has researched and has come to his possession and and he's now got up on the shroud and and i know he's he's forgotten more than all of us probably know so <laughs> really uh but fascinating really really appreciate it well you know being being the editor of shroud.com and interacting with all the top scholars in the world on the study of the shroud you're bound to learn something <laughs> <laughs> exactly exactly well same here i definitely learned something and then hopefully for our viewers uh, they've learned something as well so anyway stay tuned uh for other videos in this series on the backstory of the shroud of turin and otherwise, please visit my site, GuyPowell.com, GuyPowell.com, and then sign up to receive more episodes. Thank you so much, Barry, and really, really appreciate it. Thank you. Truly my pleasure, Guy. Thank you, and congratulations on starting something good. Thank you. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to getting my book out there. I don't know if it's going to be a couple of months or another or more longer, but it's, it's close. It's close. So. Everything in God's time. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you.